Well, I just got sad because I was thinking about uh, the Sonics guy. Yeah, he's been around I a always long saw him. time. Yeah. I saw him in Mary Mart. It was always nice seeing him in Mary Mart, especially when you brought new people into Mary Mart. Yeah. You would go, hey, that's the Sonic guy. Chris Brandon was a really good guy. Um, a pretty uh, pretty big staple in the local uh, comedy scene as well, too. I've seen a lot of the comics posting some nice things about him. Uh, he did work at Mary Mart. I remember seeing them, him there a couple of times. And I think even uh, Billy brought it up a couple of times he's been on. It sucks, man. It, apparently, he passed away from a heart attack uh, this last week, like Thursday or Friday. It's so, a super yeah, bummer, man. That is. Sure. Yep. So condolences to his family and everyone that he affected in the uh, community. Cause he was a positive force. He's positive for Tacoma, you know, everything around here. I, yeah, everybody. Incorporated in 1875, proclaimed as the city of destiny, Tacoma has maintained itself as the city of grid. Tacoma kept its in-your-face artistry and individuality that sets it apart from anywhere else in the world. Our never-say-die attitude continues to this day. We are honored to bring to you those who live in Tacoma and its surrounding areas, whose contributions are what bring this city to life. The reputation is real. Welcome to the Grid City Podcast. Here are your hosts. Welcome to the Grit City Podcast. I am Justin. I am Boudreaux. <laughs> Scott. I'm Jeff. And today's a really special day. I'm really excited about this. I know that everyone else is as well. We've got a special guest on today. We've got Mr. Dan Nims from MUFON, a, the chief investigator of MUFON. Dan, how are you doing today, sir? Doing well, guys. Now, let's start off right away with uh, explaining what MUFON is for the layman, because we talk about a lot of stuff on the podcast, but we need to make sure and get out what everyone knows what we're in for today. I love it. Well, MUFON is the Mutual UFO Network. It's been around for about 51 years now. It started out as the Midwest UFO Network and eventually expanded out to cover the entire country and eventually the entire world. It's an organization of volunteers who are interested in the UFO phenomena, and it has three primary functions. Uh, One is we offer uh, the ability to investigate folks' UFO incidents. So if they go to MUFON and file a case, uh, MUFON will, inside, will assign a, uh, an investigator to look into that case and try and arrive at some conclusion about it. Uh, the second thing MUFON does is they publish a monthly uh, magazine, uh, what it started out as is a magazine many, many years ago. And of course, in this day and age, it's an online magazine as well, uh, the MUFON Journal, which kind of summarizes activity. And the last thing MUFON does is they hold an annual symposium where they bring together uh, UFO presenters on various topics, and uh, we gather together and hear what we feel is is some of the better and more scientifically uh, 
based uh, information about UFOs. And and you yourself are the chief investigator of the Washington chapter, correct? That's correct. It, MUFON is organized by state chapters. And oh, okay. So I, I supervise all the investigations which occur uh, here in Washington state. That is super awesome. So what actually, what is what, uh, what is involved with a uh, MUFON investigation? Say somebody files a report and people can check out what's going on um, with the Washington chapter uh, by going to uh, org, And so they can go there. Um, right up right up top is to report a sighting um, and get right. all the information out that way. So say somebody does report a sighting. Um, does that go immediately to you then at that point for you to uh, decide uh, how to deal with it? Or how does it how does the process go? Well, that when you click on that button, that actually takes you to the um, MUFON headquarters uh, Ooh, site, yeah. and it pops up a uh, a, uh, a page where you go through. You start by identifying who you are, uh, contact information, few simple questions like that, and then it moves on to a second page where you actually uh, describe the event that occurred. Uh, there's some questions on there about, you know, the normal things you'd expect to be asked, date, time, location, uh, what did you see, you know, some various questions about the nature of what you saw. And then you su- submit that. And when that's submitted, uh, it goes to uh, a system called our case management system. And the first thing that happens at the national level is they determine what state the uh, event happened in. And then the case management system, CMS, sends out a, uh, an automated uh, email to the state director and to myself. And when it pops up on my computer, I review the case, uh, generally looking at, you know, where it's located, the, the nature of the case, what exactly happened, uh, how, you know, how difficult the case is going to be to investigate taking into account a few factors like that, then I assign one of the a dozen or so investigators we have here in the state of Washington to the case. And then the case goes out to them, and they contact the witness and begin an investigation in the case. And wow. uh, it, uh, we, we try to include a direct one-on-one uh, interview with the witness in the uh, completion of all our case studies. But aside from that, there are a lot of uh, just uh, normal sorts of things we can do to gather information other than the witness's statement. Uh, we, we have special sites we go to to, to collect the weather for the location. Uh, we have sites we can go to to look at the aircraft uh, activity in that area. We have sites we can go to where we can look at such things as have any uh, Bright meteorites been uh, turned uh, reported in that area. Um, we can go to sites and look at uh, past uh, UFO cases that might be in that area, and just get some general background. And then, if the case has any specific uh, conditions, uh, you know, people can always go out and research the web to see things like that. I mean, that's a really if, 
that's a well, good take when it just i mean just going in terms of like doing the the research to see how if you can uh make a, a a simple deduction making uh an unidentified flying object a, an identified one um and then you can kind of go deeper if you need to at that point and just see where the report leads right right the the primary take uh, primary cut we make is between is it a ufo or an ifo an identified flying object and then we've got a couple other cats and dog categories we it could drop into now if the case involves uh, something that is uh might have actually impacted the site of the case. Somebody reports a landing, or somebody reports uh, something, even even just a low approach to the ground. We can always, at that point, dispatch our our investigators to actually do an on-site visit at the location, and uh, we we come equipped with uh, certain types of. You know, they're not, you know, they're they're standard equipment you can buy from any science stores, Geiger counters, three field meters, things like that. And uh, we'll survey the site to see if there's any uh, residual evidence of the case. If it was, for example, a landing, we can go in and we can do uh, uh, plaster castings of any depressions. We can look for any evidence on the site, uh, liquid deposits, uh, drop pieces, uh, in anything like that, and we can collect them and collect uh, evidence like that, much like uh, you might see on any forensic investigation of a of a criminal site. I have a question uh, for you, Dan, um, from our um, coaster questions. Out of uh, the investigations that you were um, involved with, what was your favorite one? Um. It, it, when you do an investigation, when, when investigations come down the road, uh, about 70% of them end up not being UFO-type investigations. They're IFOs or information only or uh, historic cases that are so old there's no way to investigate them, things like that. So out of every 100 cases, probably only 30 of them are going to be real UFO cases. And of those, probably... 70% of those are uh, what we call lights in the sky, lights or orbs uh, doing unusual things in the sky that uh, normal um, natural causes generally wouldn't cause. So you're down to a very limited number of cases that are actually uh, investigating something really significant in the sky. Uh, one of my favorite cases happened up by uh, Ellensburg, Washington. A uh, gentleman and his wife were sitting at home in the evening, and their dog started barking. And so uh, they thought that was unusual. They lived out in the country. So the gentleman walked out one side of their house onto their patio, and his wife walked out the other side of their house. And they looked up, and they could see two sort of rows of lights moving across the sky uh, over their head. And uh, the gentleman stood there. there he, he is a pilot, so he knows the weather conditions in the Ellensburg area pretty good. And he says generally if there's a ceiling in that area, it's about 1,500 feet or so. And these lights were below that ceiling. And he realized that the, the front set of lights and the back set of lights between them, they were blocking out uh, the, the 
light reflecting off the overcast above them. And he stuck out his right arm towards the front set of lights and his left arm towards the back set of lights. And there was about a 90-degree angle between his arms. So given that ceiling height and that angle, that suggests he was looking at something crossing over her head, uh, probably about uh, 1,000 to 1,500 feet long. Wow. Wow. Now, uh, believe it or not, quite large UFOs are not uncommon. Uh, We aren't talking about uh, little automobile-sized flying saucers or things like that. Many reported UFOs are, are quite large. It makes it, it well. It makes it interesting on that point in just the thought of if if something like that is reported and it is that big, like how how would not more people see it at that point? Is it just because of the remote locations that they're being spotted at that? Uh, actually, uh, I think probably the biggest factor is that we're just not a very observant race. Yeah, you're not. <laughs> we're going about, about our business. We're looking where we're going. We're looking at what we're doing, and we're not looking up into the sky. It usually takes uh, somewhat of a phenomenal event in the sky to attract our eyes to the sky. Uh, Yes, there's a certain factor. I mean, it's well known that the vast majority of UFOs are reported where the people are. You know, I get a lot of cases from Seattle, Tacoma area, a lot of cases from the Spokane area, Mm -hmm. Vancouver, Washington, or the Tri-Cities area over here on the east side. Uh, very few cases in between in the in the remotely located areas, All right. but a few, and uh, so uh, it, it's and and then the, there's always the issue of, you know, the number of UFO cases uh, is kind of a point I like to make in discussions like this. Yeah, uh, if if you were to ask the average man on the street how many UFO sightings there are in a year. Uh, probably most people would comment somewhere on the order of a, a dozen or two or three, maybe a hundred or so. Yeah. In actuality, over 5,000 cases are reported to MUFON every year. Wow. And there is a, a, a similar reporting site, the National UFO Reporting Center. Uh, they also have reports on that order around 5,000 years. So, and and we find there's very little overlap between the two organizations. <laughs> so you're talking about 10,000 cases being reported every year. Now, uh, you have to realize those are primarily in the United States, a few from UK, Australia, Brazil, places like that. But vast parts of the earth don't report to either MUFON or NUFORT. So uh, when you take that into account and you, and, and, uh, Many UFO researchers have, one of the questions I ask whenever I'm at a meeting is, how many of you here have seen a UFO? And, you know, in a UFO meeting, it's not uncommon to see virtually every hand go up. And then I said, how many of you reported that sighting to MUFON or to anyone? And all the hands go down, but maybe one or two straggly hands. So it's probably not uncommon to, to suggest that Probably one out of 20, one out of 50, one out of 100 cases are actually reported. And it makes so, sense. Well, and it makes sense, too, just in the terms of just you were just talking about not people not being observant, but also people just being able to kind of explain away something that they might have thought they saw, you know, something oh, yeah. actually there. 
but yeah. they just were like, well, it couldn't have been there because I'm an adult and those things don't happen. Right. You know, if you don't have an appreciation for the UFO uh, world actually happening out there, a lot of people will write them, oh, it was ball lightning, oh, it must have been an airplane or something like that. Now, when you see, you know, when you see a really phenomenal UFO sighting, uh, it, it has an impact. Uh, when I was investigating my Ellensburg sighting, I was researching some other nearby sightings, and I came across a case up along the Columbia River, up uh, along the reservoir behind Grand Coulee Dam there. Uh, a couple had a, a vacation cottage up there. And uh, they saw something strange in the air, and they got out their camera, and she started video recording what was going on. Unfortunately, the video recording uh, was kind of a loss because there was a bright light on the corner of their deck, which kind of washed out whatever was going on in the sky behind it. But the audio was perfectly good. And the audio starts out, oh, look at that. What's that? Well, that's strange. Then that must be a bunch of airplanes. Look, there's no. That's just one object. And there are thousands of lights across the front of it. Oh, my God, look at that. Explicative, 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 explicative. <laughs> sounds, sounds about right. And then, and then you get to the very end of the tape, and she said, we need to get down on our knees and start praying right now. Well, it's so funny that you said that you know nobody looks up. That's a thing that you hear on nature documentaries all the time that is a – like I'm building a bar right now, and – you know, we're talking about the stuff on the ceiling and everybody's, well, why does it matter? Nobody ever looks up. And it never occurred to me that that is a perfectly reasonable <laughs> explanation with, with, UF, with UFO sightings, too. I know when I'm in a bar, I'm looking at the, the, the person I'm talking to or my drink. And so, Yeah, yeah it, that's what I want them doing. I don't want them looking <laughs> at my drop ceiling. Yeah. <laughs> so what? how did you end up starting with uh, MUFON? Because you've been with them since 2017, correct? Right, right. So Just the last it, few years. Yeah. So when, uh, like, how did you, uh, did, how did you find them, or, or what reason brought you to uh, to come to them? Well, a little of my background. Uh, I'm retired from the Air Force, where I was a test pilot and fighter pilot, and badass, uh, and uh, <laughs> worked uh, out at Edwards Air Force Base. And I was clicking through a news uh, channel on the internet one time, and on the corner I saw one of these little additional things you can go look at, and it was labeled UFOs in the Antelope Valley, which, of course, is the area where Edwards Air Force Base is north of, of uh, Los Angeles there. So I thought I'd re listen to that. So I listened to the guy give his talk, and, of course, he got most things wrong. Uh, he <laughs> mistook all the, the low observable test facilities that exist up in that area for all the Los Angeles-based uh, uh, Aircraft manufacturer Lockheed Northrop, uh, McDonnell Douglas. They they all have these very remote, very secretive, very classified uh, test facilities up in that vicinity. And he was mistaking them as UFO bases or something like that. But at the end of his talk, he was advertising a book called A Novice's Guide to UFOs. And I thought, well, I don't know much about this UFO topic. I'm kind of like everybody else, every other Joe Bag of Donuts. Uh, you know, I, you, you watch the occasional sci-fi movie or you look at the oh, occasional yeah. report in the newspaper. So I said, I, I'd be interested to find out about it. So I read that book and then I read more books and then I read more books. And by the time I'd gone through about 
20 or 30 books, I, I figured out, you know, what the average person thinks about the UFO world is totally wrong. These things really do exist. They've been around for centuries. They've been well-researched for the last 75 years or so. There's incredible confirming documentation out there about what the world thinks of these things. And I went on from there to join MUFON and quickly went through the training program to become a, an investigator. And after working on cases for a year, uh, the state director invited me to become the chief investigator. I handle about 200 cases a year in Washington state uh, that come in and assign them out to our investigators here. So uh, it's been, been a, a fun ride. It sounds amazing. It really does. I mean, it's just kind of a fun way to uh, continue on doing like research on something that, I mean, it's very highly interesting to me. I, I've always loved the thought of all of that and the possibility. And I mean, you always, you always kind of hope that there's a, the, you know, the possibility of that stuff out there, but it's fun to see your, um, your and MUFON's take on just being like, well, we're going to, we're going to make sure and see what we can find um, and rule out stuff before we get down to uh, what we hope it is. Yeah. You know, that's MUFON's uh, basic motto is the scientific investigation of the UFO phenomena for the benefit of mankind. That's what we do. Uh, I have a question. Maybe this is kind of a, a, a lateral investigation, but have you had any like men in black sightings or do you guys cover that? <laughs> Interestingly <laughs> enough, guys. Oh, really? You are sitting in the home of the first man in black sighting. Um, there was a case. This actually preceded the Roswell case down in New Mexico in uh, 1947. It's called the Murray Island case. And yeah, we've had an episode about that. Yes, yes. It's great. And part of the result of the Murray Island case was the next day, a man in a black suit, uninvited. Un, you know, the guy hadn't reported it to anything, anybody. He hadn't called the police. He hadn't called the Air Force or anything. But... A man in black came to meet him and question him. And after their discussion, he says, this never happened. This was nothing special. You're never to talk about it again. Da -da 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 -da. Yeah, like that happens. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the, the, you know, the first reported, recorded man in black case. Now, the men in black phenomena has happened. Uh, I don't speak from any personal uh, interface with them, but. It's well recorded as, as an event that has happened down through the ages. And uh, there's a variety of uh, theories as to who the men in black are. But uh, it's, it's an interesting aspect of the UFO. The UFO world has many interesting side facets that are quite, quite interesting in and of themselves. And that's one of them. Earlier, you mentioned uh, the symposiums that um, uh, are held. Are those a uh, like members of MUFON all gather to um, uh, to commiserate, or is that like an open public sort of thing? It, it's open to the public. Oh, obviously. right on, right on. If you're from uh, a MUFON member, you get a a cut rate on the admission, and uh, I would say probably that's how that's how I first got familiar with MUFON. As I went to a MUFON symposium, and I was I don't even think I was a member of the first one I attended. 
and uh, just I sat around there and and looked and I said, you know, there's when you go to various UFO events, you quickly can get a feel for them. There are some that are kind of like a Star Trek convention where yeah. everybody's oh, dressed yeah. up crazy and and uh, everybody has their best friend Bob is an alien and everything like that. <laughs> and then other ones like the MUFON Symposium or the Ozark Mountain UFO uh, Symposium, where it, it seems to be people seriously interested in the the issues around the UFO topic. And uh, I, I was there and I happened to run into a guy who's a who's a former astronaut who I used to fly with out at Edwards. And oh, wow. So uh, that that gave me a. Uh, a, a tie to the to the world. Are you still in uh, in contact with him? I, I spoke with him at the last symposium that was held down in Irvine two years ago. The, oh, right on. The one last last year in uh, in Las Vegas, of course, was canceled due to COVID, and mm-hmm. we've got one scheduled this year in July down in Las Vegas. That's uh, still scheduled to be an in person event, but who knows how COVID's going to go? Whether or not that will actually come off or not yeah and i mean it's like i know a lot of that stuff is transitioning to at least like uh have some sort of online experiences as well so and yeah a lot of the major events like contact in the desert which is in may uh the mcminnville ufo fest down in mcminnville oregon uh, i don't think it's going to go this year the the uh national ufo congress i think was online last year and i think it's scheduled to be online again this year so a lot of a lot of people are handling it that way which has its advantages and disadvantages you know when it's an online situation it makes it much much less expensive for the presenters uh to participate so they you know good presenters don't have to charge an arm and a leg for airline tickets and things like that uh accommodations and whatever and for the people attending they don't have to you know find their way to Las Vegas and stay in an expensive hotel and lose an arm and a leg at the <laughs> crap stable. And, or, uh, you know, or put on pants. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. You can attend your UFO conference in your, in your pajamas. <laughs> and it's a, it's like, a, it's a good way to do that too, because I mean, some people are genuinely interested in this in, uh, again, like you said, maybe they just can't financially swing something like that, or maybe they might not even be, uh, currently, you know, you know, in America, and it's a chance or, you know, just not being able to travel to that area for any aspect. It gives a lot more people a chance to kind of get an experience or at least learn more about um, what is going on with uh, MUFON. Yeah, it, uh, it, it, it works out. It has advantages. It has a huge disadvantage, too, because I find the advantage of the MUFON conference is meeting up with fellow MUFONese and and. Yeah. Uh, Moving around, the, uh, <laughs> there's a there's the outside chance that an, an assembly might form in the corner of the bar, and uh, and uh, some deep dark thoughts exchanged on how things are going. And, uh, and I, I find that probably the the vast majority, many of the presenters are presenters I'm familiar with. I've heard their presentations before. Uh, some of these, you know, they always try <laughs> to be fresh and new, but. Uh, Sometimes there just isn't all that in any particular year. There isn't a lot of fresh new stuff. So uh, the, the presentations are, are not, to me, the big advantage. The big advantage is sitting around with, uh, I, would, I was down at Los Angeles two years ago, and I 
I ended up at a table at lunch uh, with Angelina Shear uh, from Tennessee, who unfortunately just passed away last week. Oh, uh, condolences. But she's done personally over 3,000 investigations. So, you know, when you can talk with somebody with an experience level like that, you can really pick up a lot. Yeah. And I mean, that's like, I mean, even going to, uh, I've been to plenty of different types of conventions, including, you know, work ones and just having that chance to speak with people who have had that experience and even just sitting at the bar and BSing with them for however long you get a chance to, it it can have a lasting impact. That'd be the kind of stuff that I'd go specifically for. You know how I feel about panels. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We we've gone to plenty of uh, conventions where it's like, well, yeah, the panels are fun, but I like to drink <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'll, I mean, God, yeah. Love all that stuff. Do we got any, uh, Jeff, we got any other coaster questions? Yes. Have you, uh, this is from Derek. What has your been, uh, sorry. What has been your most unbelievable investigation that in, that ended up as a hoax? Ended up as a hoax. Well, hoaxes are part of the business. Mm -hmm. Uh, I frankly, in the three years or so that I've been a chief investigator and the four years I've been an investigator, I, I, uh, I, hoaxes have not been a, a, a big part of, I think that, you know, hoaxes tend to run in waves, I would guess. You know, I, I know that Peter Davenport, who runs New Fork, uh, got hit with a wave of, of hoaxes last year, and it just drove him mad because, uh, you know, it's just high school kids thinking what a giggle to, you know. Uh, it was like when so, everyone was like a clown in the woods scaring people. Like for like yeah, one summer, it's just, it's the cool thing to do. That's not yeah. funny, dude. You I, can I'm, really hurt somebody I'm not doing say, that. I'm not saying it's funny. I'm saying that people thought it was funny. I don't like, like clowns. <laughs> but... uh but uh, in, in MUFON, there, we deal with two types of what we call hoaxes. The first is what we refer to as a keyboard hoax, where somebody just decides to click on the report of UFO and types oh, in yeah. an entirely invented episode. The other type of hoax is, is an actual hoax where maybe somebody like hangs Christmas lights on a drone and flies them over the parking lot of the local mall. Oh, that's a good something, idea. <laughs> something like that. Um, and, uh, for the keyboard style hoax, it's kind of up to the investigator to interview the witness and ferret out if it in fact is a hoax. And, uh, you know, uh, you do a 20, 30 minute interview with somebody on the phone or by zoom or whatever. And, uh, they're telltale signs that indicate oh, yeah. very quickly you're dealing with somebody that's <laughs> a hoax, you know, uh, probably one of the best ones is any time you start to question any particular aspect of the story, almost immediately, there's much more detail they have to say about that part of the story that they didn't tell you to begin with. You know, that's one of the tells that when they just keep going on and on and inventing more and more. Suddenly and more, and more, more details. Yeah. Uh, the ones that are, you know, actual uh, created hoaxes, are much, 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 much rarer. Most people don't want to go to the trouble of doing something like that. I mean, there's always somebody who goes out with a rope and a, a board and stomps out a, a crop circle or something like that. But uh, 
Interestingly enough, on crop circles, you, uh, MUFON has an entire study guide on that particular phenomenon. And apparently, it, uh, I've never, I've only worked one crop circle. Uh, it turned out to be a, a, a false uh, case. Uh, uh-huh. Somebody just seen uh, the marks of a pivot line irrigation system going around in the field. <laughs> oh, damn. Uh-huh. And, and that was followed by a very strong uh, thunderstorm where the down blast from the thing started flattening stuff. Oh, wow. And the wind would, you know, of course, would hit in the ruts of the of the wheel going around the field and blasting out from there. Oh, that's kind of so cool. It, so it made some, you know, I don't fault the lady for reporting it. It no. made some quite unusual patterns in the field. But uh, but uh, in the end, it was really just a pivot line. Oh, that's uh, funny. But All I, mean, I can think of is like... like Cousin Bob. That's his cousin Bob out there in the truck. He's just spinning brodies, man. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and it's like, I mean, how did you even cut, like find that out? I mean, that's a, like a process to like even discover. Yeah. Like you were talking about, like it's a forensic site. It really, really is at that point. The lightning strikes are super cool. Yep, yep. The 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 gust fronts and the wind blowing things is. Uh, you know, there there are lo- all kinds of I- identifiable uh, things. There are things that are identifiable man-made creations. Oh, that was just an airplane, or that was an SR-71, or that was an F-18 out of Whidbey Island flying a low-level route or something like that. Uh, but there were uh, other, other, other things that are natural phenomena, like uh, cap clouds over mountains can really... Sometimes you look at these pictures of these things and say, boy, I would have called that a UFO too. You know, it's that strange, but it, it's a well-known phenomena to the, uh, and part of the training you get in, in uh, MUFON. So we know what they are. So we're, we're familiar with them. How is MUFON funded? It's, it's, a, it's an all-volunteer organization. There are people who make uh, donations to it, uh, primarily uh, – you know, like I don't get paid to investigate a case. I just take my, I'm retired now. So I take my own time and my own effort and, and I investigate. Uh, so there's not that much expense associated with uh, with the actual investigation. Other than that, it's just the MUFON members uh, fronting, up fronting the cost of doing things. And that's that's not a great way to do things. I mean, we hold our symposium and we charge for that. We have membership, we charge for that. So there are some revenue. So it's self-funded. Yeah, it's nice. self-funded. I mean, the government doesn't come down and you know, it's not like <laughs> ATIP and come down and hand uh, some guy in Las Vegas twenty million bucks to go investigate things. No, we don't see things like that. Well, you mentioned the government now, and uh, there's like, especially the last year, I feel like they were just trying to throw anyone a bone, and they were uh, releasing a whole bunch of documents. Well, there, you know, as far as there has been kind of a, an interesting series of things happen in this last year, some of them directly from the government, some of them sort of sideways from the government. The first thing was back in 2017, in December 2017, where three videos were released or, or got out into the public. They weren't officially released at ah. that time. Uh, but they got out into the public, and they were pretty impressive. They were videos taken from fighter craft uh, with their optical 
system that has, of course, a military-grade, high-quality optical system. Some of them were actually FLIR, uh, forward-looking infrared videos. It, it looks like an optical video picture, but it's actually uh, a picture of thermal uh, temperatures. Uh, I, as a test pilot, flew with FLIRs for many, many, many years. And, of course, when I saw them, I, I could interpret them perfectly well, but the average person couldn't. And they were things like Gimbal or Tic Tac or GoFast. And uh, about a year and a half ago, I met uh, Commander Dave Fravor, who actually was involved in the, uh, the Tic Tac incident off San Diego back in, I think it was 2005. And uh, it had actually taken 12 years before that actually got widely out into the public. He said amongst the, the naval ranks, the, the story had gone around quite well before then, but, uh, but it was just later on. And, and Dave's story is just amazing. He's, he's a, he was the squadron commander of an F.E. Kane squadron, and he was out training one day, and he and his wingman, wingwoman in this case, uh, were flying a training mission, and uh, the radar controller said, we're going to call off the training mission. We want you to investigate an actual contact. So they vectored him off towards the contact, and after a few minutes flying, he arrived at the spot where the contact was, and initially they didn't see anything. And then he started looking down below, and he was at 20,000 feet, so that's four miles up in the sky. And he looked down, and he saw this small white dot doing this kind of jig down basically at, at surface level, at water level, moving back and forth. And he says, I wonder if that's what they've been seeing. So he started to let down to go look at that. His, his uh, wingman held high. And as he started down, the thing started up to meet him. And they oh, met about 12,000, 15,000 feet, and they basically got into a dogfight. And uh, he was trying to get behind it. It was trying to get near to him. And you ended up with what fighter pilots call a Luffberry, two objects flying around in the circle on opposite sides of the circle, neither able to close in behind the other one. Well, Dave's a graduate of uh, fighter weapons school, so he says, I know how to break Luffberry. And so he, he executes the maneuver to, uh, to close. He was only about 1,000 feet away from this thing, and that was the famous tic-tac. It, it's the description is it looks like a 40 foot long tic tac. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's white. It's, it's a blunt on each end and cylindrical and uh, no inlets, exhaust, wings, tails, cockpits, windows, anything, just this tic tac. So he executes the maneuver to close him behind the thing and the thing says, enough of this. Uh, Dave says the visibility that day was 40 miles at least. And he said within two seconds, the thing was out of sight. Just done. And we posted, uh, I posted the video in our Discord. So if anybody pops into our Discord, you can find it there. But that's just, that's intense. Like I was just, I was watching it as you were describing it. And um, my heart's beating a little bit faster. So <laughs> actually, actually, that video that is not from this story. The, the, is that not? In his contact. He and his, you know, there were four ah, people, more. pilot in the backseater of both airplanes, uh, Dave and his wingman. So four people saw the Tic Tac in that event. Now, oh. uh, they turned around. They started heading back to the boat. They were coming back to land. And uh, the radar controller just said, oh, that thing just popped up again. Oh, no. Uh, on radar. He says, oh. The radar controller says, yeah. 
it's at your training point. You know, there was this spot in the sky where they were supposed to be vectored to go do their training. And the thing was now sitting right at that location. Now, that indicates that not only does this thing fly strangely and do strange things, but it also was able to intercept secure conversations and know exactly where this training point was. So anyway, Dave comes back. He lands. He's got a two-ship from his squadron. And so he briefs them on what they've just seen, and they take off. And they were the ones, actually, who got the video of the Tic Tac. Interesting enough, those pilots never saw the Tic Tac. The only uh, vision they had of it was through this extremely uh, telephoto imaging pod they were carrying. And that's when they recorded the Tic Tac video. That was terrifying. <laughs> You're freaking me out, man. <laughs> well, let, let me freak you out a little more. Dave uh, says when they were flying in to make their rendezvous, the other two pilots flying in to make their rendezvous, the Tic Tac jammed their radars. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> and there, it was only because of the skill of the, of the radar operator to slew his optical tracking system to the line of sight of his radar and then capture it with an optical lock on that they were able to get that video because it was jamming their radars. Now, as a pilot, a former pilot yourself at that point, how does that make you feel? Like when you first hear something along those lines and you redo the research and you find out about this stuff, like what was your initial reaction? Because I'm tense about this and like it has to be on a whole other level for you at that point because that could literally be, could have been you at any point. Yeah, I speak fighter pilot pretty well. So. <laughs> <laughs> I've got over 2,000 hours of, of high performance time. And uh, I've used, you know, the optical systems like they were using. I've used radars like they have. Uh, I flew the F-16. They were flying F-15 so, or F-18. So very, very similar airplanes. So I, I'm pretty familiar with those circumstances. And when you tell me that something's out there that can outperform you, not just by a little bit, not just by an extra G or a few tens of knots, but just fly circles around you and then disengage in two seconds, you, you know, it, you, you, it'd be the same as somebody flying around in a World War I spad getting intercepted by an F-22. Oh. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's just it's all it's all crazy to me, man. I'm I'm like, what? It freaks me out. I don't know how you feel. I made my wife. She is she's not a UFO enthusiast at all. But I made her watch the uh, Bob Lazar um, documentary on Netflix today. <laughs> and there's a couple of points on there where the guy he's like, um, he just just deadpans. The guy's like, you worked on alien equipment. He's like, yeah. <laughs> And, Bob and, is an interesting guy. I actually met Bob at the same time I met Dave Fravor. Uh, they were both speaking at uh, McMinnville that year. And Bob's, you know, he was there basically. He hadn't spoken publicly uh, for probably 15 years or more. And he agreed to do the McMinnville UFO conference just as introducing this new movie they'd made about him. And uh, he's a very, very, very interesting guy. and it's. It's very obvious. I mean, 
Bob has not made a nickel off this whole thing. You know, he hasn't written a book. He didn't, you know, I don't know. They probably paid him to, to make the movie something. But he hasn't made anything off this. It's not like he would be doing this for fame or fortune. I mean, goodness gracious, as soon as he did all this, his life was just collapsed. You know, he uh, got uh, thrown into court for I, I don't know what all. But, I mean, uh, as soon as he came out like this, and, and basically he explained he did all that when he did it. When he came out, he went public. He says, I did it because I was afraid they were going to kill me. Yeah, it's an interesting story. It's one of my favorites to kind of, uh, I don't know, introduce people. Because I, I, I find him very believable. I, I, I mean, I don't know. I <laughs> I do. But who knows, right? Um, I, I just, uh, it, I, while, the, while I was watching the movie, the, the thought, because I, I've never had any encounters of any kind of anything. <laughs> and I always think this, like, um, if I did, would I even bother to tell people? Like, you know, because it's so controversial, it could just upend your entire life, right? Like, I don't know if I would even say anything. Oh, it it, it does. You know, uh, I had a case. I can't even tell you about the case because I don't know anything about it. I filed a case that I was, it was over here in eastern Washington, uh, up, up above uh, Clarkson, Washington. A guy was up in the mountains. I think he was unloading his horses, getting ready to go hunting or something like that. And he gives a few details about the case. And a case gets assigned to me, so I send out a contact to the guy. And all I get back from him is, uh, I'll get back to you after I move. I'm not staying around this place any longer. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, at least that kind of keeps it, uh, at least that he's maybe willing to talk at some point. So you got to kind of keep that case open. There's got to be other ones where it's just got to be frustrating at some point because of uh, the the lack of willingness of people. Yeah, while understandable, it just kind of stymies any sort of case that you have at that point. Well, one of the most frustrating aspects of this is the really, really, really good case. The ones that really uh, are impactful to the witness. Frequently, it takes them days, weeks, months, sometimes years before they come to grips with the case and bring it to MUFON. And, you know, you can have uh, E.T. land in your backyard and throw a camp out. Uh, and if two years later, there's nothing there to, to, that you can investigate. Yeah. You know? yeah. Just thinking about, like, the shows like, uh, you know, the first 48 or something like that. Like, time is everything. And even at this point, you got to come to grips with a reality that you may not be even ready to come to grips with. Right. If there's, if there's some sort of radioactive presence from the, the presence of a UFO having been there, uh, we can get in, we can measure it with Geiger counters and things like that. Or if there's some sort of impact on the magnetic or electromagnetic fields in the area due to a uh, UFO, which of course uh, is, is a fact that is pretty well appreciated in the UFO world. Uh, if if you can't get there within you know 24 hours, your your ability to actually detect that and measure and try and determine what's going on is kind of moot. Yeah. So it uh, it's a little frustrating that some of the really good ones that were you know to me the ultimate in a UFO case is something that actually touches the ground for some reason. Uh, it lands, 
it hovers low, uh, it confronts somebody personally, face to face. Those sort of things are the sort of things that are really uh, challenging to investigate, uh, and they're pretty rare. It would seem they'd be I, the most rewarding as well, too. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you, you told me there was a way I could upload pictures here. It's uh, upload, it says it's uploading right now. Let me see. Oh, there you oh, go. Yeah, there you go. There it is. Nice. You got the pink ring. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, you can find that on wow. our Discord page. We have the pink ring on our uh, Discord page. That's that that. There's nothing wrong with uh, uh, obscenities with that. Uh, is there, Scott? We're fine. No, we're explicit. We could say whatever we want. All right then. All right, we got the pink <laughs> ring, everybody. So okay. So Dan, what is the pink ring? Uh, this is the pink ring UFO. It occurred down in ocean shores uh, last late last spring. Uh, a number of very interesting things about this. Uh, first of all, you can see it's not a classical UFO shape. It's not a saucer. It's not a triangle. It's not a cigar shape. It's a, it's a toroid. Also, there is apparently this string of beads around half of the ring, the bright pink, uh, bright dots around the pink ring. Uh, okay, and now the case gets weirder and weirder. This pink ring appeared in the sky in the exact same place on two subsequent days. What? Just like I it was observing at that point. That freaks me out, man. And All the- right, here's the picture of oh. the situation. Whoa. And uh, what you can see is, I love this case. This lady was my favorite witness. You know, most people will get take a picture like the upper one of whatever it was in the sky. Matter of fact, they'll take their their uh, camera, their cell phone, and they'll try and zoom in on it, which is absolutely worthless. It's all pure digital zoom. Yeah, it doesn't do a thing for us. You know, you might as well just hold the <laughs> camera up and take the picture. I can zoom in digitally anytime I want. But this lady <laughs> had the foresight to not only take a picture of the object, but with the foreground. Available. Yeah, there's a frame of reference it. right there. Yeah, you can see how, what angle it was in the sky. You can see the, the foreground there. I, you know, the telephone pole. I know where she was standing, so I know what azimuth it was from her. And, you know, Hail Mary here, there is the moon in the picture, too. Right. So I can get a measure of the angular size of the object compared to the full moon. This is a great case. Yeah, that just is so exciting. Like, I mean, having all of that there, because the first picture, I mean, you get to see exactly, I mean, sure, you know, see what, especially a a closer view of that, but having that entire frame of reference, was this the original person that had submitted it, or was this somebody else that you had sought out? No, this 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 is the witness, okay, one and only that I'm aware of. Uh, I, I I thought I had a take on somebody else from the Ocean Shores area who had also seen it, but it turned out it was he was I had a different sighting, so it wasn't the same. Um, now I know I told you that this is highly unusual that uh, that. Uh, this shape of UFO is not very common, mm-hmm. but coming your way, folks. There you go. Well, there you go. Right. Now it's now no longer pink ring. We got a brown ring. Nope, we got the donut <laughs> UFO. And the donut UFO. 
Now the story of the donut UFO. This happened this summer. What? Wait, what? This summer? Yep. Oh, uh, aliens not following COVID rules. Yeah. <laughs> well, showing. I don't know. It looks like he's at least six feet away from anybody else. Here. <laughs> uh, not wearing a mask, but, uh, you know, three times. Once in the Seattle area, once in the Vancouver area, once in the uh, coastal area, Ocean Shores area. Within a week, three times, this UFO was spotted uh, across Washington. Uh, it's estimated by the witnesses to be somewhere between 40 and 100 feet across. And it spins. It just doesn't, it isn't just sitting there, but imagine a vertical axis with the donut spinning around it. Whoa. So that was the, uh, my Seattle chief investigator investigated all three of these cases because of their similarity. Oh, that's going to be fun too. Then at that point, having multiple leads on, uh, what could be one singular, at least entity. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he came up with, of course, you can go down to, uh, any grocery store and buy the Mylar zero balloon, which (laughs) would look similar (laughs) except, uh, this thing is 40 feet across. Very few grocery stores sell the 40-foot version of the True. balloon. True. Uh, he located a, uh, a company up in Alaska, which actually makes a quite large uh, toroidal uh, balloon. With it, it carries a wind turbine in the center of it. And they Whoa. fly this balloon up to altitude where, the, of course, the winds are stronger. And... Uh, but they went out of business, and they say they haven't flown it for many years. So it wasn't that. And it doesn't look looks similar, but not not anywhere close to what this thing looks like. So uh, this was a came out as an actual unidentified as a final. That's decision. crazy. Did they um, say that that pink one um, spun as well? I'm sorry. No, it's every picture she took. She probably took 20 pictures the first day probably uh, 10 or a dozen the second day. And in every picture, it looks the exact same orientation that you see in the ones I just showed you. Whoa, what a trip. Now, same, you... spot, same spot in the sky both days. Now... And, and that, that's confirmed because I got the metadata off for photog- photography. Oh, and, metadata. And, and... That bastard, it but, gets you every time. Yeah, nobody, knows, nobody realizes the metadata, man. Ah, yes. That's tricky crap. It's like the Spanish Inquisition. No one ever expects it. Send me a picture, and the first thing I do is go to the metadata. Uh, now, can you see if people have been tampering with the photo then at that point? Yeah. All right. Yeah, so, yeah. So, that's that, that, the first thing you want to do then. Yeah, totally. Now, so, I don't, the next one I've got for you isn't quite as good. It's not an actual picture. It's... Uh, Sometimes, and quite frankly, uh, matter of fact, that in uh, recently in the UFO Journal, there was somebody who wrote an article as an investigator explaining a UFO he actually saw, and he didn't take a picture of it either. He was so overwhelmed with the UFO that he didn't. So you can't fault paper when they don't take pictures. It's like the time I saw Denzel Washington at the grocery store. I didn't think to take a picture. That's hilarious because I was thinking the same thing. I've seen like uh, <laughs> like violent crime happen, and I was just like, "Ooh!" <laughs> I could so take a picture of that, you know. But it's amazing how many of our witnesses turn out to be not bad artists. So this is a couple. They're sitting up in North Washington, over on the east side here, 
up at their uh, recreational cabin up in the woods, up near the Canadian border. It's uh, just past midnight, and they are enjoying their uh, Christmas present that year, which was a hot tub. Nice. And they're sitting out there staring up at a clear, starry sky, and uh, they see three lights in the sky. And then they realize that between the three lights, some body was blocking out the star pattern behind them. And it goes overhead, flies out. This is a classic uh, triangle UFO. Lights on the three corners. That's almost always lights on the three corners. Occasionally, uh, a a large central light on the bottom. I investigated uh, five uh, triangle UFO cases here in eastern Washington. Just this year, uh, I had a, a great case last year. Triangle UFO flew the exact same course, exact same pattern, two nights in a row over folks here. The interesting thing about this case, very low altitude, triangle UFOs, very low altitude, usually treetop height, less than 1,000 feet, something like that. Always very, very slow. Uh, people suggest they're only going 30, 40 miles an hour. Far too slow to be supported by any sort of aerodynamic lift. Uh, dead silent, no noise whatsoever. This thing is, you know, just a few hundred feet overhead. Uh, again, 100, 150 feet across, uh, no noise whatsoever. Flies away to the north, and then uh, almost immediately, a very large, conspicuous helicopter comes in at treetop level, <laughs> circles over them, and then departs in the direction this thing flew off. So are triangle UFOs them, or us, or who? You don't know. That was the one, <laughs> that that was the next question I really wanted to ask is, uh, is there a consensus or a determination between maybe yourself or like MUFON or anyone who attends the symposiums or professionals as a whole, whether or not they are foreign or domestic in nature? Well, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I was a test pilot. And then later on in my career, I was the director of test in the early days of the F-22 program and eventually the uh, director of test facilities for the Air Force. So I managed uh, all the Air Force test facilities. So I had a, let me just say, uh, I had a pretty darn good appreciation for what was (laughs) going on in the Air Force. Uh, so you would know for a f- – so I lived in New Mexico when I was uh-oh. a little kid. <laughs> and yes. that was back when they were testing – well, there was some stealth bomber action going on. And that thing looks just like that picture. So uh, every time yes, I've ever seen it. a I'm stealth like, bomber doesn't fly at 40 miles an hour. Oh, that's true. It was really far <laughs> away and also, really fast across the Grand Teton mountain range. And also, I bet you you heard it when it went by, didn't you? Yeah, it was definitely catching your attention. The hearing thing gets me for sure. Um, now, but it, that that is yeah. the primary identifier of something that we would place in the unidentified category. Almost every form of man-made propulsion or man-made aircraft is uh, super loud. Is super loud. E- even you know dirigibles and blimps and things like that have big motors that push them through the sky. Uh, about the only form of man-made object that doesn't make any sound is a Chinese lantern, and we investigate lots of those. But uh, every other form, airplanes, helicopters, uh, uh, blimps, uh, all make a lot of noise. 
and most uh, most often people are talking about being within quarter mile of these sorts of things. And you all know if you're out in a in a quiet area somewhere, uh, and an airplane flies over at thirty thousand feet, that's six miles away, and you still hear it as it flies overhead. Yeah, but man, when those F-22s or whatever go flying over, you don't hear them until they're right on top of you. Yeah. Or you don't uh, hear them until they're already <laughs> 10 miles away. That is scary, man. That's probably a friend of mine. Uh, <laughs> I, as a test pilot, I was doing a lot of night testing uh, in the F-16, night attack testing, the, the first systems going aboard high-performance fighters that gave them the ability to fight at night. And uh, we were at Edwards, which, of course, is in north Los Angeles County on the other side of the mountains from the city of Los Angeles. And like everybody, we work Monday through Friday. So Friday night is a work day. And so we would be up flying on Friday nights. And, of course, Friday nights is when all the Angelinos come creeping up out of Los Angeles to go four-wheeling in the desert. (laughs) And you can see them creeping over the empty desert hills (laughs) miles away. You see the little headlights going up and down as they're bobbing down the little dusty, gravelly Jeep tracks. So you reach down and you switch off the external lights and you let down to 200 feet above the ground on the terrain following radar and you push it up to about 500 miles an hour and you go right over the top of them, light the afterburner, (laughs) turn on the strobe lights and go straight up. I would do that. Pants. If I could, I would do that. <laughs> I have. Oh, that's times. awesome. <laughs> Man, I feel like Cosmic Bottles need some framed pictures now. I'm opening a uh, a space-themed bar in Covington in a few months. We're collecting all this memorabilia, and my uncle worked for NASA for 30 years, and we're trying to gather up all these kind of cool little spacey bits. And I'm just thinking, man, I didn't think about UFO pictures. That would be pretty cool. <laughs> There's a number of pretty good ones. Interestingly enough, probably the classic and best UFO picture, in many people's opinion, is nearly 75 years old. It was taken in McMinnville, and that's why they hold the uh, McMinnville uh, UFO Fest there every year, by a farmer and his wife with a little box camera. In perfect focus, it's got uh, foreground in 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 the picture. They took two shots. You can see the thing cross behind a power line, so it's obviously in the sky, not, you know, somebody dangling a, a pipe line upside down from a fishing line, you know. And uh, it, it still is considered to be the classic UFO photo. Uh, everybody says, Dan, there can't be any UFOs. Everybody carries a high-quality tel- uh, camera around with them now in their cell phone. If there were real UFOs, we'd have a million great pictures. A cell phone camera is the lousiest form of camera you could design <laughs> to take a picture of a small thing in an empty sky. Have, yeah. Has anybody tried to take a picture of the moon? Look how shitty it is. And you're like right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it all moves. So that's the problem, right? Everything's moving. Yeah. Well, the one of the more common things is you find when you're investigating these things is uh, uh, the witness can give you a far more detailed uh, description of what the uh, was going on on the object. You know, did it have windows? Did it have wings? Did it have yeah. inlets or exhausts or anything like that? 
a, a guy up in Spokane had one of my more fun cases recently. Uh, he says, Dan, I was sitting in my backyard and I saw an airliner flying around north of Spokane. And then suddenly a UFO jumped off the back of the airliner and chased it. <laughs> <laughs> and he gave me a fairly good description. From he, he took pictures of it with his cell phone, of course. But he could describe the airliner very clearly. Uh, blue with a white tail. He described the thing flying along behind it, uh, chasing it. Uh, and uh, hmm, I said, so I went up on Flight Radar 24 and took a look at aircraft in that vicinity and was able to identify an aircraft flying around and checked its identity. And it was BOE 001, which is the Boeing test bed for the 777-9 aircraft. So I called up Boeing Flight Ops and talked with the pilot. He says, yeah, we carry a trailing wire instrument pod that oh we God. launch, and it trails behind us when we're doing low-speed testing, uh, pulling it on a cable, which obviously at five miles away, the guy couldn't see the cable. And uh, that was the answer to what was going on there. But the guy could give me a much better description. I couldn't, couldn't get any of the blue with a white tail out of the picture he took, but he gave me enough information that I could identify the air, exact aircraft, and I knew who was driving it by the end of the investigation. That's amazing. That's really cool. Yeah. Do you, um, when, do you feel that, uh, where is Washington in terms of, like, overall views? Do you feel that uh, above, below, or about the average? Uh, <laughs> we are On the Bigfoot scale, where are we? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're in way a scale up there. of 1 to 10, we're probably 11. Nice. Really? Yeah. As it turns out, if you were to look monthly at the MUFON sighting reports, and I do monthly, uh, we usually fall out uh, somewhere around somewhere between fifth and eighth in the monthly uh, standings. Overall, for the year last year, we were eighth as far as number of cases. But when you take into account the population of Washington versus the population of California or Florida or New York, uh, we probably end up per capita somewhere in the top three as far as sightings. Like I was saying earlier, you get the sightings where you'd normally expect to see them. Where the most people are, you get the most sightings. Makes but sense. There are some areas that uh, turn out to be, uh, we continually get sightings year after year after year. Uh, do you understand? Do you know where Lummy Island is uh, up off of uh, Bellingham? Isn't that where Scott wants to move to? I think no. Oh, Lumi, they, they have a Native American tribe up there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's up uh, up on the north uh, eastern side of Orcas Islands, up by Bellingham and stuff. Oh. Okay. It's so brief. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, continually get sightings of uh, uh, red or bright orange orbs flying around there. Uh, Mount Adams, of course, is a major area for uh, UFO sightings. Very, very remote, very rural. Quite a lot of sightings there. I worked when this summer uh, of uh, two red orbs crossing over the valley, coming over the ridge on one side, across the road, and departing over the ridge on the opposite side. Uh, I Actually, I was up there, uh, I guess it wasn't last November, but November a year ago. I was up there and, and uh, helped uh, the History Channel doing a, a, a segment of their Expedition X series as the resident expert for UFOs in the Mount Adams area. Of course, he said he ranches right there 
uh, outside of Trout, uh, Trout Lake, Washington. And uh, uh, that's a, a famous place where people go to set up and walk for UFOs around Mad Adams. Uh, the Tri-Cities area, the Hanford Reservation, uh, it's a well-known fact that uh, UFOs are frequently accounted for around important nuclear facilities like Hanford. And uh, one of the first UFO cases of the modern era was uh, over Hanford during World War II. Uh, something was came up on radar, and there was a Navy uh, interceptor training base there in uh, Pasco, and they launched an aircraft. He was climbing up as about as high as his airplane could go, trying to get a better look at this thing. And he called his boss and said, boss, if I'm going to go any higher, I'm going to ruin this engine. He says, trash the engine. Tell me what that thing is. So he took it up to about 44,000 feet before he had to break it off and come back down, uh, which is pretty impressive for a piston-powered airplane. And he says, it was pink. Uh, and the size of three aircraft carriers combined. Wow. Damn. <laughs> so uh, I get lots and lots of sightings over the uh, Tri-Cities, Pasco, Hanford area there. Do you think any specific reason? Like, I mean, we have military installations. Obviously, when you say Hanford, it means the nuclear stuff. Does that Does that have any correlation to anything, or is it just... Lots, lots of sighting over uh, Oak Ridge. Lots of sightings down uh, in New Mexico over uh, shoot, what's the site down there where <laughs> they did the A bomb development. Lots oh, yeah. of sightings in that area. Uh, a number of, of you know, of course, one of the reasons sightings are reported in these areas because nuclear facilities are heavily guarded. Yeah, and the guards are intentionally looking around for things. I mean, it's not like your average guy, they are looking around, looking in the sky, looking for anything that could be a threat to these uh, facilities. And there have been a number of UFO sightings over SAC missile uh, bases along the northern tier, some w where they actually have been sighted over a squadron of missiles. There's, I think, 10 or 12 squadron or missiles in each squadron. They're spaced out maybe two to five miles apart. And uh, UFOs were sighted by the uh, guards over one site, and it eventually moved along over other sites. And it actually shut down the missiles. Jeez. Uh, they, they actually went into a, a no-go no condition, big red lights. And Boeing had to come out the next day and bring them back online. They said, nothing wrong with them. They're perfectly good. Why they went into a no-go state, we'll never know. Now, shutting down missiles, there's one problem. The Russians actually reported a case where a UFO went into, was sighted over an ICBM base, and the missile went into a launch mode. And fortunately, it stopped just minutes, seconds before the missile actually launched. Yeah, we don't need that. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants that. Uh, oh, my God. That's one of the big issues that, you know, many... Uh, say the government has a great interest in in UFOs because they don't want the identification of a UFO being misinterpreted as a as a missile launch or something like that, starting a war. So. Didn't they? Um, it's just this is 
I don't know. I guess it's perfect. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, again, I made my wife watch uh, UFO documentaries all day today. <laughs> <laughs> so um, on the History Channel there, there's a show, uh, Hangar One, and it says a lot of that is based on the uh, MUFON records. Right. And it's it's – it's pretty good, man. Honestly, for a history show, if you can get through all the intros <laughs> every 30 seconds or whatever they do. Um, but one of those on there was they actually said that there was a um, a treaty. We signed a treaty and they specifically listed in their UFOs as a um, like a clause. Like if you have a UFO, you need to call the other country and let us know you have a UFO before you launch a <laughs> missile. It was crazy to me. That blew my mind. <clears throat> well, it's... Uh... It's a serious issue, and you can understand why those who start to take UFOs seriously, like the supposed ATIP program and its follow-on back in Washington, D.C., uh, I forget what they call it now, the Office of UAP Investigation or something. Uh, yes, they did sign into law here uh, uh, at the start of the year as part of the COVID recovery thing. There was a clause in there that says, the Department of Defense, or the, uh, I guess it's the Director of Intelligence, has to report to Congress what they know about UFOs within 180 days. And uh, so the time will be up sometime this summer. Ooh. And everybody's interested to see what report comes out. Most people are betting on a whole lot of nothing. But uh, like some of the stuff they redact, where you can read the date it was sent out and end of message at the bottom and everything else is blacked out. You know, yep, we, we met our requirements under the FOIA Act to send you a copy of this. But uh, That's got to be frustrating. I remember seeing a lot of those. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, probably the most uh, interesting thing that's happened in the UFO world, uh, UFO world in the last year or so is the uh, Admiral Wilson document leak. Uh, these were some documents leaked or were not leaked, but from the archives of Edgar Mitchell, the uh, former Apollo astronaut, uh, one of the 12 men who've actually been on the moon. And he had in his documents a, an interview by a scientist of a high-ranking naval officer who was, at that time, I believe, the number two intelligence officer in the Department of Defense and discussing how he had been briefed by uh, uh, Stephen Greer about all this military involvement. And Greer's point was is that many people who should be in the know about this in the military were not in the know. So the, the admiral says, well, I don't believe that. I'm going to go check on that. And it turned out within a few weeks he was able to find out, yes, there were some programs going on which he wasn't briefed into. So he confronted these people and he says, hey, I'm the number two man in intelligence. I've got the need to know. Uh, brief me in. And they said, uh, you don't have a high enough clearance level. Wow. What? And they said basically what, uh, don't worry about it. It's nothing important. We've just got some crashed UFOs. We're trying to make them fly. Uh, <laughs> we, 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 we haven't been able to do that. They're too complex for us. By the way, enjoy your CDs, your fiber optics, your integrated circuits, and your night vision goggles, because that all came from, from UFO technology. There was such a leap in technology that 
it's very highly suspect. I absolutely believe in that. Yeah, there's a there's a, a whole book about that that many people discounted. Uh, the day after Roswell, the story of a gentleman who worked in the Pentagon and his job was to take the technical things they derived from the from the Roswell crash and feed them judiciously out into the military uh, industrial complex to the contractors who built stuff for the military in such a way where they would be told, we can't really tell you where we got this, but this is a really cool thing and see what you can make of it. And uh, that's where we got night vision goggle technology and fiber optics and, and lots of things like that. I don't know, you know, some people now give his version more credibility than it was given initially, but uh, seriously, thank you for spending some time with us. Like, um, if people want to find, guys. yeah, if people want to find out more information, um, about MUFON or if they want to, um, see if it's something they would, they would like to volunteer for as well, uh, what can they do? Well, of course, uh, MUFON is online. The, the, the big MUFON, uh, MUFON.com and Washington MUFON is, as we said at the start of the program online at MUFONWA.org, O-R-G. And in either of those sites, you can either report a case, uh, a sighting. You can uh, report if you had an experience, that is to say, missing time, contact with an with a, uh, extraterrestrial or abduction. That's a whole different area we never got into tonight. Uh, but you can do that. Uh, those will, uh, those sites also have lots of information about what's currently going on. Washington MUFON, we hold uh, a uh, webinar every month on the third Saturday of the month uh, for a couple hours on uh, Saturday afternoons. We have some great speakers who talk about all aspects of the UFO uh, business. You can uh, sign up for those at the Washington MUFON site uh, and listen in on the webinar if you're interested. And uh, that's mainly how you get involved. If, awesome. if folks are are interested in the business of ufology, uh, I would highly encourage them to join MUFON. Uh, for 30 bucks a year, you get the, the magazine, you get the access to all the channels, you get to know about uh, uh, what's going on in the world of ufology on a monthly basis. And, of course, saves you costs for joining the MUFON seminar in the summer every July. Heck, yeah. I 30 bucks is probably worth the magazine alone. Yeah. Um, I think <laughs> I, I would love to have you on again for oh, all yes, these please. things. We have yeah. questions from some of our listeners. We have um, stories. Yeah, I'd love we have to hear about stuff, the abductions so. or close encounters is the last one that popped up. Oh, cool. oh yeah. And we'll have to that's, get that's you back on to talk about that. Area in, in, yes. in MUFON, there is, as well as our general field investigators, we, I think in MUFON, there is at any point in time, somewhere between 500 and 800 failed investigators. There is a small subset of that, about uh, 30 to 40 investigators who do the experiencer resource team, and they work primarily with uh, that type of case. Ooh, special ops. <laughs> That's cool, man. I'm one of them, too. <laughs> nice. Okay, yeah, so that is just a tease. We're going to have to absolutely have you back on. 
Dan Nims, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us and sharing your experiences. Again, we will absolutely 100% have you back on. Thanks, guys. I had a good time. Uh, dig out of the snow and enjoy yourselves. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll try Have to one on me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now that we don't have a guest, I can post more inappropriate UFO. <laughs> yeah, I was waiting for that one. I know he Do got I... a little a little distracted on uh, all what was going on with that, but that's why I said something because he's like, "Oh, look at that!" And I'm like, "Oh no, don't get him started! Like, don't get him started! Focus, UFOs, let's go!" <laughs> oh my god, so astounding! I fucking love that. Uh, we're gonna have him back on 100. percent um, I'm so happy that he was able to spend some time and we didn't even get to the, uh, close encounters and abduction. So holy shit. Well, uh, we didn't get to a ton of coaster questions too. There was a couple in there. We just didn't get to. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was able just yeah. to give us like, a. I mean, there's a lot of just awesome, like he has stories and he wants to tell those yeah. stories and I want to listen to those stories. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to start, right? Like, um, it's slow starting because you don't know exactly how people are gonna like start with ufo stories you know what i mean yeah you know, like how how is right. this gonna go right so hopefully next time we'll be uh well i say hard starting but man he dove right into it yeah so fuck i don't know i'm excited i like this one <laughs> i had a good time yeah so um <laughs> thank you everyone who uh listened to us live and checked out you can see all the pictures if you can get through all of brogan's alien sex gifts um, I forgot we were recording shit. Yeah, we are. Uh, you can go to our Discord. You can find that at gridcitypodcast.com. Uh, also, subscribe to our Patreon. We do cool stuff with that, right? We do. You get some t-shirts. You get special other access to other. You get... Wait, hold on. <laughs> you get a t-shirt at a certain level, but then you get access to other special designed by Jeff t-shirts as well. And then you get the... Um, our old episodes. Is that a bitey vagina? Whoa. Brogan See, there, there was stuff. a reason that all videos were blocked for a while. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> of Brogan. <laughs> well, we have to maintain an uninitiated human being. We are we are a community now, according to Discord. <laughs> so we have to maintain a certain level maintain a certain level of Hey, if there's a gif of it, Discord's okay with it. <laughs> uh, with Patreon. argue with my logic. With uh, Patreon as well, you get some access to some amazing <laughs> art that Jeff has made, which usually we suspected people would just put on T-shirts, but some of our awesome patrons have actually been able to uh, post them as ac- their own bar art. So that's just pretty, pretty tight as well. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, no, You know what? I, I think I'm going to get a Grit City uh, poster for my bathroom. Oh, really? really? Places to put it, but. Yeah, so our guest bathroom. I, I'm in negotiations with the wife. I said, can I turn this into a Grit City bathroom? Grit City bathroom. Yeah. Whoa. That's kind of the place for a Grit City shrine, in a way. <laughs> I, I, mean? I yeah. thought At least so. a podcast. Thought... So before we get out of here, let's uh, see note. If C-Note's down for his UFO story, I want to hear it. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa, who sneezed? That's a COVID sneeze. Everybody get their mask. Oh, that was my bad. Because I sneezed and hit the push yeah. to talk button at the same time. <laughs> that was nasty. That was gross, man. I don't want to use Yeah, that. it's hanging off my mic. My ears are wet. <laughs> C-note. That, are you, are that you, sounded so juicy. Yeah, right? <laughs> How you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good. I got uh, about halfway through the podcast there, so I missed the first half. 
Well, good. You can go back and listen to it and give us some numbers. I uh, definitely will anyways, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's worth it. Yeah. It's really worth it's it. This guy was good. He's a this good, is good great, story. man. This guy filled out our uh, trifecta. So we got the Bigfoots. We got the Sasquatches. We got the Ghosties. What else do we got? We got the UFOs. Because I said Sasquatch. We got the Flat Earth. The Flat Earth. I think uh, we should make a best of and just stream them all together into a mega mix. (laughs) Make a the conspiracy mega mix. (laughs) Make it a playlist on Spotify. I know we're on Spotify. I just don't know how that works. But see, I don't know. I I get you guys on Spotify. All right, cool. Figure us out. I don't know. Make us a playlist. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sino, you posted in the uh, Discord chat while we were live, but uh, uh, you have your own UFO experience. So, yeah, so it's not too exciting, but um, probably about eight years ago, I uh, was getting done. I, I shoot fireworks, and it was about after a fireworks show, and I was looking, uh, I guess it would be right over Fort Lewis, you know, in between Olympia and Yelm. And we were just hanging out, just chilling. I was come out and, you know, be forward and say, yes, I was uh, smoking some weeds. What? <laughs> so, you know, but we were sitting there and we were talking about how I had never experienced a UFO and the two people I was with had experienced, you know, stuff. And so we were just talking about it. And then as I'm sitting there, we see this bright white, uh, like a, like a bowl, like a, like a ball. Um, you know, I'd say a couple miles away was just like kind of, uh, floating there. It it came up, it came up real slow and then it made this like V motion, like a check mark and it went down and up and it just flew off. It was just gone. Like a thousand miles an hour. It was crazy. That's nuts. Yeah. But as we were sitting there, like it was the whole ordeal was probably two minutes. Like it sat there and it sat there and it kind of moved around a little bit. It was just doing this little thing. And then boom, just gone. We were, we were like, Holy shit. What the, what the hell was that? (laughs) Uh, So now all the questions, man, why didn't you grab your phone? Yeah. Come on, man. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. You know, good, good question. Good question. I don't know. See, at that point, I'm just like, please don't abduct me. Please don't abduct me. Right. I think that's half the problem. I think that's the same thing with Bigfoot um, things, right? Because you're just freaking out at that point. You're like, this isn't real. This is bullshit. And then they're gone. And you're like, oh, shit, that was real. Well, I should have taken a picture. Back, yeah. back when we <laughs> well, had- that, that was us. We definitely kept looking at each other like, what the fuck? We were just talking about this. This is so crazy. We When we had BFRO on, the dude is even talking about when he had his, his encounter. It just, he froze. He's like, what else are you going to do? Like, it's something that is kind of uh, not with conventional reality, and you're sitting there processing it. I hope, I hope, like, I hope he's right with there's like a whole bunch of people out there have just seen this stuff. I know we got like the Maury Island stuff, and you can go back and listen to our old podcast about that too. A little bit more detailed uh, recreation of that. But like, damn it! I forgot we we're recording again. Yeah, we're still <laughs> recording, man. I finishing this all up. But yeah, thank you, Cino, for that. If people want to send us more information about UFOs, info at gridcitypodcast.com, or you can get on our Discord or on our social media and tell us all about it. 
and maybe we'll have you on because you can just join our Discord and tell us like Zeno did. Thank you, Zeno. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks a lot, man. Yep. Uh, I think that's it for uh, all our ins and outs, right? I mean, we're pretty good. <laughs> There's a gift for that, too. Oh, shit. All right. We're getting out of here, you guys. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, share us, like, subscribe. I don't know, whatever. And uh, stay gritty. You've been listening to the Grit City Podcast. Check them out at gritcitypodcast.com. Yeah.